Uh, I'm excited about your process and how that's going, so we continue to pray with you about that. Um, why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer before we get started this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, we thank you that even though um, in modern standards and in, in the eyes of the world, um, people would look at your word saying it's outdated or out of touch, but we thank you that that's not true. We thank you that your word applies today, that the principles of your word are just as relevant and help guide us, help encourage us about who you are and how you operate. We thank you that we have your word. Uh, many times we are, are desperate and discouraged by the troubles that we face in this world and we have a sure anchor in your word. We thank you for it. As we sang earlier, we, th we thank you that your word stands and that we have the privilege to read it, to talk about it, to discuss it, to preach it, to live according to it. And we pray that you'd use your word tonight to be an encouragement and reminder about your goodness and your faithfulness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, worry is a common problem that we have in the human experience, isn't it? Um, in regards to worry, I found this illustration that I thought was kind of a cute little uh, challenge about the futility of worrying. So there, apparently there was a French soldier in World War I who carried with him a little note that reminded him about how foolish it was to worry. And this was how his note was written to help him logically think through it. It said, of two things, one is certain. Either you are at the front of the battle or you are behind the lines. If you are at the front, two things, of two things, one is certain. Either you are exposed to danger or you are in a safe place. If you are exposed to danger, of two things, one is certain. Either you are wounded or you are not wounded. If you are wounded, of two things, one is certain. Either you recover or you die. If you recover, there is no need to worry. If you die, you can't worry. So why worry? Right? Um, the logic is simple. It is foolish to worry, isn't it? But yet, we often do it. Um, worry is a common temptation because we're, we're sinners in a, in, a, in a dying, lost world. And the tendency is sometimes to trust ourselves or in what we can see. And in our day and age, we're living in a culture that is becoming increasingly opposed to God. So that also can create anxiety or worry as we see the majority of people do not believe in God, do not worship him. And, and yet, in our country, it used to be. It used to be that the majority of people worshipped God, revered him, or at least acknowledged him. But that is changing. We are living in a country that has largely apostatized, turned away from the Lord. 
And that can increase our uneasiness or our sense of worry because we become the smaller and smaller minority. Well, when we look at 2 Kings, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to look at 2 Kings, and in 2 Kings, we're going to see the state of the northern kingdom where they're in a situation similar to what we are, except their country is even further gone than I believe ours is at this point. They are in a situation where kings have instituted false worship. There has been a departure from the Lord. There has been a corruption of the priesthood. There has been a turning away from the Lord. And uh, we see how in that situation it's difficult and uh, hard for those who are genuine followers of the Lord to survive. And we're going to see here tonight, I think, in, in chapter 4, there's a lot of ground to cover um, to, that we'll have to go through quickly. But we'll see in chapter 4, I believe, how God meets the needs of his people. God meets the needs of his people even as they are living in an apostate country, a country that is turned away from the Lord. So the first example that we're going to look at is found in 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Just a couple notes before we jump into that. The first is, if you remember, we did talk, uh, at this point it's probably many weeks ago, a couple months ago, we talked about how Elijah was going to transition over to his replacement, Elisha. And that's what we're seeing here as we look at chapter 4. Elisha is now the prophet of the Lord that stands in, in the place of what Elijah was doing in the northern kingdom. And his role, we see here, is very similar to many of the things that Elijah did. In fact, it, we're going to see different miracles that are very, very close in nature to what Elijah was used to do uh, earlier on in 1 Kings. So as we're looking at that, understand Elisha now is the prophet. So we're going to see, first of all, verses 1 through 7 an example of how God provides for the needs of the finances of this particular woman who's in trouble. So let's look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself and from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out in all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, they were bringing the vessels to her, to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one, more, one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. So we see here how God provides for the financial needs of a woman who is 
in a destitute situation. She is in a very desperate situation. She is a widow. Now, it's a little hard for us, I think, in our modern culture with all the the modern conveniences that we have and the government assistance programs and all the things that we uh, have available to in this country to really appreciate the destitute uh, situation it was for a woman who didn't have a man to help with the work of uh, farming and uh, taking care of things around the house. It was often a very, very desperate situation. So her case, she has two sons and this wife was the wife of a, a son of a prophet, so somebody that had served with Elisha, and she mentions here that he's been a faithful servant, and yet she uh, has lost her husband and has two children, and she has an unpayable debt. Notice in verse 2 that it says, the cre- or uh, verse 1, she's explaining the situation. It says, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves also hard for us to appreciate in our modern day and age it's no big deal if people owe money to somebody else nowadays we have bankruptcy filings you just get that all wiped away no big deal many cases you never have to pay it at all it's just absorbed by someone somewhere or the government to take care of that but that was not the case then there was a financial debt and it had to be paid and if a person couldn't pay it it could result in servitude or slavery and so in this case her two sons are going to be taken from her again the work of maintaining a house and a farm was a difficult task for one person and to then lose her two boys as well not only is it terrible for them to be in servitude it's also difficult for her to survive in that situation. So it's an unpayable debt she has here, and her request for help is an urgent matter. So what does she do? She essentially is turning to the Lord through his prophet. So she's crying out for help to Elisha to get help because she has no ability to pay. So we see here that Elisha asks, what resources do you have? And her answer is simply a jar of oil. That's her only means, her only significant possession that might be a help in the situation. So he says step one here is that she is to borrow vessels. She is to get storage containers. So she's to go and ask for empty vessels from all of her neighbors, as many as she can get, and she is to pour the oil into the storage containers and save the stored oil. Now it's interesting, a couple things about this. Number one, She's urged to get many. She's urged to get many. And, and her pursuit of many would be an indication, right, of, of her faith, that she's trusting in this provision and she's going to ask for many, trusting that the oil is going to be sufficient to fill them. And we see that she does, in fact, start immediately on pursuing what he said. In verse 5, we see that she leaves Elisha. It says, Uh, She went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing vessels to her, and she poured. So she carries out the instructions. She immediately goes to it. She shuts the door, as he had said, and pours in the oil, and the storage containers are being filled up. And it says in verse 6, when they were full, she said to her son, bring me another. And he said, there's not one vessel more. Now notice the oil then 
stops once all of them are full. What a wonderful little picture of, of the Lord's provision, right? As many vessels as she grabbed, they were all filled, and the oil stopped once they were all full. God had provided, but it's also interesting how God had revealed what she should do. She was only given step one. Isn't that interesting how the Lord often works in our lives too? We, we in our seeking of his provision, we want to know the whole plan, do we not? We, we want to know how it's all going to work out. And yet she was given one step. Go get all these vessels and fill them. That's it. So then she has to come back. So she comes back at the end of this and says, all right, the vessels are full. Verse 7, she told the man of God uh, that she had done this. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. So her debts are then paid. And it says, you and your sons can live on the rest. So notice the immediate need was met, as also was her continuing need. Now, now think about what was she asking for? She was asking for this immediate need to be met, right? That's what she was asking for. And yet, God gave her not only the resolution for that immediate debt, but also her ongoing needs. God truly took care of her, didn't he? God takes care of us. And in this case, she got more than she asked for. God abundantly took care of her needs. It is a great reminder, I think, we're looking at a situation where it's an apostate country in Israel at the time. People have turned away from the Lord, and there's, there's many different times we see in the nation of Israel that there's famine, there's hardship. In fact, we're going to see that at the end of the chapter, there's famine. But yet God, in spite of those circumstances provides for his people. And if God can do that then, he certainly can and does do that for us now, does it? He provided for their financial needs. Uh, there was one time my wife and I were visiting a church, and the Sunday school teacher was recounting some things in his own life. He was just giving testimony and he talked about how at one stage in his life, he lost his job. I got the impression from what he was saying, there wasn't anything he did wrong, just for whatever reason, his job was no longer there. And he looked for a job, he diligently pursued getting a new job, but basically found himself without a job for two years. And he described how during that time, though it was a hard time for him, that during that time God met their needs and there were days even when he had to go fishing in the local pond or river or lake or whatever for the things they were going to eat that night. And yet, here he was giving testimony how God faithfully met their needs during that time. And in some ways, he, he talked about there was a special uh, joy in that circumstance in seeing the various ways in which God provided for them and met their need. So it is for us. Though it was a miraculous situation in the passage that we read, 
It is illustrative of God's faithfulness to us and his faithfulness throughout the ages. We may encounter times of severe desperation, um, even get close to the point of uh, being on the brink of uh, destruction or, or very difficult things, and yet God provides. God met her needs. God will meet our needs. Well, let's look at another example we find in this chapter as well of another need that God meets here, and we see how God works within the family to meet needs. So there's a family situation where some needs are met here and some uh, another miracle takes place, actually a couple miracles, and God works within the family structure. So notice, first of all, we're going to see verses 8 to 10, how God uses this wealthy woman to provide for Elisha, the man of God. Verse 8, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as oft as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and set a table and a chair and a lampstand, and it shall be, when he comes to us, that he can turn in there. So we see this wealthy woman persuades Elisha to join her at one point for a meal, and he agrees to do that. But he also then develops a pattern, we see at the end of verse 8, of as often as he passed by, he would eat there and, and, and join her for a meal. So she regularly provided for him. Now Shunem, as I understand, is a, is a small uh, city in Issachar, which was somewhere on the road between Mount Carmel and Samaria. So evidently a trip that Elisha would often make. So he passed by there and would turn and get food. So she was providing for him. But she was then prompted out of a motivation to uh, serve him and, and take care of him because she appreciated and recognized he was a man of God. So she wanted to do something nice for him. So she provided, um, and, well, encouraged her husband to help build a place that he could stay, where he'd have a bed and a table and chairs. So there would be modest provisions for him to sleep and study. And we see as we go on that Elisha makes use of this. So look at verse 11. We see one day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. So this was something he would do. He did take advantage of this. And we're going to see how then he makes a promise here to the woman to be a reward to her for her taking care of him. So we see that he asks what he can do for her. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call the Shunammite. And when he called her, she stood before him. He said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? So in other words, he's saying, Are you having any trouble with the government? And can I intervene for you? Can I uh, encourage them to do something nice for you or work out a problem that you're having? But notice her response. She answers and says, I live among my own people. In other words, she's saying, I have what I need. I, I don't need anything from you. 
So she is essentially saying, I'm not aware of any need you can meet for me. So um, Elisha, however, is determined to do something kind for her since she has shown such kindness to him. Verse 14. So he said, what is then to be done for her, to Gehazi his servant? And Gehazi answered, truly she has no son and her husband is old. So Elisha said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Verse 16. Then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now her response might be kind of interesting, but if you think about it and understanding like we talked about the culture of that day, it was very, very difficult for a woman to survive on her own. There was much is said about the care of widows, those, that, those women that lose their husbands or on their own. And often it was children that would be the ones to help them and help them take care of and manage the chores and responsibilities and provide. But this woman was in a situation, though she had much, her husband was at least significantly older than her, and there was an expectation of a future need where she would outlive her husband and then would have need for some help around the house or to give her property and, and, and wealth to an, an heir. And, and there are many promises in the Word of God about the, the significance of the land and, and that uh, being important to be preserved among the family, and yet she had no one to give it to. So it would be important to have a son, and certainly she would have wanted one. That would be the normal experience for women in that day. And it was, a, it was in a way, often something women felt embarrassed or ashamed of if they were not able to have a child. And it was often a very hard and difficult thing. So why is she responding this way? I think we, we can understand with all of that in the backdrop, she probably had wrestled with it and had gotten to the point where she accepted her state and figured it was never going to happen. And she had made, if you will, peace about that. So then this offer is being made to her to have, or this promise really, to have a son, and she's skeptical. She's experienced the emotional hardship of wanting one and not getting one, and she doesn't want her emotions to be toyed with because this is a difficult thing that she's had to accept. And she's accepted it. So she doesn't want to be toyed with or emotions to uh, be hurt. She doesn't want to be hurt again, which would be understandable. But yet we're told in verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son that next year. So Elisha, as Elijah, Elisha had said to her. So she has a son. Now, again, we're, we're making application here to our modern day, and I want to be careful. This, this in no way is a promise that anyone who doesn't have a child that wants one is going to get one. That's obviously not the point. But I do think it shows us an example of how God often works within our families to meet genuine needs that we have. In this case, in her case, it was a son. But God does meet uh, needs, 
But I also think there's an indication that this was a special gift from the Lord, also because of this woman's kindness that she was showing to the man of God. She was taking care of him. She had means, and she was helping the man of God. And um, I I think we can make application as well that it is good as God enables us and gives us means to help and serve others, especially those that are involved in serving the Lord and may be in a situation where they don't have many material things or means to meet their needs. It is a great thing to serve and help those people as we have opportunity. So this woman does that. God rewards her with a son, but things go bad here. Verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, When the child was grown, the day came that he went to his father, went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. So this wonderful gift of a son, now has, he has died before the husband did. So what seemed like would be meeting a genuine need she would have by outliving her husband, now seems to have come to an end. I'm not a woman, but imagine the hardship and the emotions of going through not being able to have a child and then having that child die young that you finally were able to have. We can understand that would be emotionally difficult, can't we? And yet the woman's response is incredible. If you read this story, it's incredible. Look at how she responds to the circumstances. Verse 21, it says, She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Now, it's subtle, and if you don't know the rest of the story, and I know probably most of you do, but if you don't know the rest of the story, she's laying him on the prophet's bed because she is going to seek the man of God for his restoration. So I believe this act here of putting her son on his bed is an act of faith that God is going to restore her son. Look at how she continues to act in response to this. We we don't see in any of this that she complains or that she uh, is bitter against God. But it is obviously a struggle, as we'll see as the story unfolds. Look at verse 22. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. Now, I I have to rip on the the man here, right? How how does he not have a clue what's going on? Right? His son has just gone to the woman, uh, his wife, the mother, not feeling well, and she now has an urgent need to go see the prophet. And he's asking, well, it's not a new moon. How does he not understand? But apparently she was a little more spiritually in tune than he was. Um, She says in response, it will be well, or it is well. 
So he does, she doesn't reveal the details to him at this time. Verse 24. It says, Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So verse 25. She went down and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. Now, as I understand in my reading, it's about seven miles between Shunem and Mount Carmel. So... That is not a long journey. So she could have made that trip relatively quickly. And it tells us that the boy died at noon, right? So it's probably still early afternoon or, or afternoon, but it's certainly not late into the evening when it's dark yet. But she, she is eager to pursue the man of God because she is pursuing resolution of the problem. So we see here in verse 25, that she's rushing to get to the man of God. But notice, the man of God notices this. Verse 20, the second half of 25, it says, When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is a Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? It is, is it well with the child? Now, it's interesting. There are many accounts where Elijah... And Elisha know ahead of time what's going to happen, don't they? There, there's a, a situation in chapter 1, in fact, of 2 Kings, where the king sends messengers to go seek the god of uh, Beelzebub. And Eli, uh, the, the prophet, I think it's still Elijah at that point, uh, says to, sends a messenger to intercept them to tell the king he's going to die. Because he has not sought the Lord and he's going to seek a foreign God and, and interrupts it before the message even gets, uh, the messengers even get very far away. So sometimes the prophets know exactly what's going on, they know ahead of time. Uh, it, you remember as well, Elijah is sitting in his house and the wife of Jeroboam comes to see him and he knows who it is, though she's disguised herself. But in this case, the man of God doesn't know. And, and we don't, we're not really told the reasons for that, but perhaps it's to demonstrate that this miracle that's going to happen is really of God, not of a man. The man of God, as, as godly as he was, as close as he walked with God, didn't know everything. And he, too, had to depend on God. In this situation. So he doesn't know. He's, he's saying, what, go ask her what's going on. She answers, verse 26, it's well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So Elisha stops Gehazi from trying to pull her off. She falls at Elisha's feet. This is a sign of utter desperation, humility, grief. She is desperate for his help. She knows only God can help in this situation, and she is there ultimately to seek God's help in resolving this problem that she has now encountered. Then she says, verse 28, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, 
do not deceive me? You, you can see in her heart she's wrestling with these emotions that we talked about. I, I would rather not have had a son at all than to get a son and for you to take him away from me prematurely. She's wrestling with those things. She is discouraged. And yet, and yet she's doing the exact right thing about it, isn't she? She's ultimately going to the Lord through his prophet. She is seeking for the Lord to intervene in the situation. But she is wrestling with the hard emotions of what she's going through. And, and notice the response here by Elisha and what he tries to do. It says, verse 29, Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. Lay my staff on the lad's face. And the mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. That's Elisha. The woman is absolutely determined to have her son back. And she is convinced God can work through Elisha to make that happen. And she's not going to leave until it happens. Verse 31. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face. But there was no sound of response. So he returned to meet him and told him the lad has not awakened. So Gehazi attempts to raise him. It does not work. And so we see the prophet uh, himself goes and is going to pray and seek the Lord and ask the Lord to raise up the boy. So let's look at verses 32 to 36 where he does that. It says, When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind him behind them both and prayed to the Lord and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm now if this sounds familiar again this is very similar to what Elijah had done in raising up a young boy Elisha's doing the same thing, but we see the, the child became warm. It seems like it is here the beginning of the answer to his prayers. In verse 35, then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she came in, he said, take up your son. So the prophet has prayed for the boy, and God has answered those prayers and restored the boy, and the woman has her son returned to her. Now, we might ask, why, why did all of that happen? And we, we know from the scriptures God works in ways we often don't understand, and so simply we, we could say, there's many reasons why God works, and we can't possibly understand them all. But I would say a few things that are logical reasons. One, this was a demonstration that Elisha truly has continued the work of the Lord like Elijah was doing in Israel. So he is truly the Lord's replacement for Elijah. But I think it also demonstrates this woman's amazing faith. God didn't give her a son to toy with her. It was a gift from God. And 
his gift ultimately led her to seek the Lord even more. She fervently sought the resurrection of her son. She had faith, we could say, similar to what we read of Abraham in Hebrews, that he believed God would raise up his son Isaac after he sacrificed him. She had that kind of faith. She trusted in the Lord. God wasn't toying with her. Her her son was a gift, and God worked in this wonderful, marvelous way in her life to preserve and restore the life of her son. So how does she respond? Verse 37, worship. says, then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. I believe we should understand she is not here worshiping Elisha. She is worshiping Elisha's God and thanking the instrument that God used to bring about this miracle. She worshiped the Lord. She was thankful. She gave praise. God met the needs in her family. And I want you to see lastly, we've got to go quickly. I know time is short. This chapter is long. In 38 to 44, we see two examples of how God provides for food needs in Israel. So we see, first of all, a sabotaged supper. So I'll read 38 to 41 first. The sabotaged supper. It says, When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. And he came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. And as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. He threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. Again, another miracle here done by Elisha, similar to one that had been done by Elijah before. And it was to make that which was unedible to be wholesome and tasty and provide for their needs. God provided for their food needs. We see also in a shortage of bread, Verses 42 to 44, it says, Now a man came from Belshalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. Now, of note here, it's interesting, this man is bringing essentially of the first fruits. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the first fruits were normally supposed to be brought to the priests, right? So why weren't they brought to the priests? Well, I, I think that's, again, a rejection of the apostate state of Israel. So the priesthood was corrupted. So this person wanting to obey the Lord, recognizing that the uh, north was in apostasy and the priesthood was corrupted, instead brought it to the man of God, to Elijah, who was faithful to the Lord. So he's bringing his first fruits from his crops to Elisha. And then verse 43, his attendant said, what will I set before this? I'm sorry, what will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, give them to the people that they may eat for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. 
So he set it before them, and they ate and, some of, and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Just like the example we talked about in the first example. God not only provided for their need, but he provided extra. The Lord provides for our needs. We, we could recount many, many, many stories of examples we've heard throughout history. We could see many of these throughout the scriptures as we do, but I think we should understand from chapter 4 that we should be encouraged about the way that God provides for his people. In the nation of Israel, they had rejected the Lord as a whole. The leadership had turned away from the Lord, corrupted the priesthood and worship in Israel. There were many kings worshiping false gods, terrible things going on there. And we've read much in 1 Kings to talk about all that. And yet, God provides for his servants. God provides for those who are faithfully following him. And as we see our country continue to decline and turn away from the Lord, we should also have confidence and great certainty that the Lord is going to be faithful to take care of us. We do not have to worry. God will take care of us. Now, he may allow us to have a life that is shortened, for some reason, maybe health or an accident or lots of reasons, he may choose to do that. But he is going to continue to meet our needs and we can safely trust in him. We should pray for our country. We want it to be changed. We want people to turn back to the Lord. But even if it never does, we should still rejoice and have great confidence that God will provide for our needs, whether they be financial or family or food. God will take care of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you how you provide for us, how you take care of us. Help us, Father, to continue to remain confident in your provision. And we only really touched on a few areas. There's many more areas of our lives where we have needs, some of which are private that we may not want to share very very deep uh, hidden things that only you know about and yet you meet our needs we we have what we need in you help us father to remember that and continue to come to you for those needs to be met help us not to be bashful in asking for what we need but help us father as well when there's delay, or perhaps sometimes it might look a little different than we expected. Help us to recognize it and still give you thanks and praise. And help us, Father, to be strengthened in our faith and to have faith like this woman, like Abraham, that you are able to do miraculous things, even to meet our needs, if that would be your will. But help us not to worry, but to safely trust in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.